This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we are going to be discussing the survivorship model of addiction. How are you this week, Sonia? Doing very well. How are you doing, John? I'm good. I'm kind of enjoying this round two of the Canadian uh, forest fire smoke alerts at our house. So seems almost like on uh, repeat from last week. Yeah, it was super hazy in Pennsylvania where my office is. And I had quite a few people coming in, you know, just not feeling great. So I guess stay indoors, everyone, till it's passed over. So anything new in addiction medicine for you this week? Well, I came across a really fun article. It was in the Journal of the Society for Hospital Medicine, and they have a series called Choosing Wisely. So for those of you who don't do general internal medicine or hospital medicine, there's a series called Choosing Wisely, um, subtitled Things We Do for No Reason, and it highlights low-value things we do in medicine. So for example, the Society for General Internal Medicine recommends against ordering pre-op labs prior to low-risk procedures. They recommend against daily glucose monitoring and people not using insulin. So a lot of different professional societies have published these lists of things you're not supposed to do because they don't really add value to patient care. So this one in the Society of Hospital Medicine was called avoiding methadone for opioid withdrawal. So it's a little bit of a double negative, but they're saying you should not avoid methadone for opioid withdrawal. And as well as talking about the reasons methadone is a good choice for some people in opioid withdrawal, they also go over how to use it. So it's a very practical article for hospitalists. And it got me thinking that we need a full Choosing Wisely series for addiction medicine. So John, if you were to choose some low value things in addiction medicine, sort of things we do for no reason, what would those things be? I guess off the top of my head, and this is kind of personal opinion, so people may disagree with this. I would, I could think of probably high volume of urine drug screens. I think that's something that we probably do more than we need to do, especially um, I used to partner up with a, like a local group that had kind of their own uh, recovery support and they sent very extensive, like six page drug screens on every urine sample every week. I imagine that's quite a bit of, of excessive cost. Sometimes I wonder how much forcing everyone to use the buprenorphine naloxone combination, how much of a difference that really makes in the long term, especially with the the cost difference between the two products. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. And then the last one I think about is kind of boilerplate like uh, recovery with recovery support where kind of forcing everyone in a program into certain services like IOP when maybe that's not what they need. And certainly that's something I was probably guilty of earlier in my career, but I would imagine a lot of those accessory services probably rack up a lot of money. Um, but that's just my kind of guesstimation. I, I would love to see some of all of those. How about you, Sonia? Anything you think I'm missing there? Well, the big one I would get rid of is short-term detox, or as they call it more politely, uh, withdrawal management, without it being a uh, sort of doorway into long-term outpatient treatment. So this sort of five-day, seven-day detox, even 30-day inpatient, um, you know, some people are just really out of control and an inpatient stay can help stabilize them a little bit. So that's good from that standpoint. Um, if someone's life is really at risk, which some of our patients are, it can get them into a safe space for a little while. But the failure rate is so tremendously high of these places, you know, 90 plus percent relapse after discharge. It's almost not worth it given all the money and energy that's put into these inpatient detox programs. You know, so I see them as a great way to get yourself into treatment and get started with treatment. But just the standalone withdrawal management, I would like to see those go bye-bye. 
Yeah, not choosing wisely, but I believe ASAM has come out and made a statement about that, that it's kind of not a treatment pathway, really. It's kind of an initiation of treatment and really should be coupled with a transition to a, another care setting or another treatment plan. So, John, after I had saw this Things We Do For No Reason article and looked to see if there was any, you know, like American Society of Addiction Medicine Choosing Wisely article, there wasn't. But I did find some from Choosing Wisely Canada, and they put out recommendations that I thought were pretty awesome. I'll put a link to their official article in the show notes, but I really think our listeners would be interested in hearing what they thought. And I also think we could come up with a few more. So if anyone's listening and has some things we do for no reason that they'd want to send us, maybe we can make a listener-generated list that we can put out for people. So the Choosing Wisely Canada had a bunch of things. And you tell me if you think these are things that we should drop from our practice. The first was, like I said, don't use withdrawal management as a standalone treatment for opioid use disorder. Second, like you said, don't use urine drug screens for patients with substance use disorder without a clear clinical rationale. Third, don't routinely request confirmatory urine drug tests where a point of care test is sufficient. That's a big one. You know, those, like you said, those tests you send to the lab are super expensive, overly detailed, don't really add much to care. So you could do an in-office point of care test instead. They say don't witness urine collections, which I think is good. You know, I think we get confused sometimes about what our role is when we're dealing with patients with opioid use disorder. And, you know, we're not our, we're not their parole officers. Our job is not to like catch them in drug use. Our job is to support them in drug use. And not that I want someone to give me a falsified urine sample, but I'm hoping urine samples are low stakes enough that people don't feel the need to go through that trouble, you know, because we're not discharging someone from treatment if they use drugs. It's more just a way to understand if they need help and if the treatment is working for them. So we don't, we definitely don't witness urine collections in our office. Another one was don't prescribe benzodiazepines for opioid withdrawal symptoms. Um, I hope nobody's doing that, but I guess it does happen if they had to put it on their list. And don't wait for liver enzyme results to initiate naltrexone at standard doses. So that's a good one. That's another thing I don't do. Do you do that? Do you make people get labs before you would start naltrexone? You know, before Vivitrol, I have been, but you know, now that I'm hearing this, probably I'm probably going to abandon that practice. I think I just needed a push, a little shove. Yeah, I think I would only do it if I had suspicion of liver disease, if someone had, you know, a known diagnosis of cirrhosis or, you know, clinical signs or symptoms of cirrhosis. I might check liver function, but it's true. Rarely do you uncover fulminant hepatitis or severe liver disease in someone in whom it was totally unexpected. Another one is don't witness or dispense buprenorphine and naloxone daily unless there's a specific reason. And finally, don't discontinue buprenorphine perioperatively or in the context of acute pain requiring additional opioid analgesia. That is one, unfortunately, I have seen. I even had recently some back and forth with a surgeon who wanted to do that for a patient going into surgery, and I had argued that we should just keep the buprenorphine going rather than stop it. Is that something that you see people doing? Very frequently. And it comes up very frequently about like, you know, people being switched over just to pure agonists in the perioperative period or taking them off. And I think it just adds another period of vulnerability. So I've kind of really adopted the just stay the course and treat on top phenomenon or kind of philosophy. And, you know, I've had people have major surgeries where they require very little additional analgesic, you know, do a multimodal pain management regimen someone has a thoracotomy or, you know, a wedge resection for lung cancer. And, you know, they end up with three hydrocodones on top of their buprenorphine regimen in the hospital. Um, So I don't, I think it's not necessary, but at least not for most patients. 
Yeah. And I know from my patients, you know what they tell me that they really don't want to risk relapse. And so they do not want to stop their buprenorphine. They don't even want to reduce the dose. The risk of relapsing to, you know, illicit opioid use is a lot scarier to them than the risk of having perioperative pain. So they often just choose to stick with the buprenorphine. And most of them, actually, the pain is relatively well controlled. They're not super comfortable, especially in the first day or two after major surgery. But I actually don't think anyone is, no matter what kind of pain management they get. So I would agree with those. Anything you think they left off the list? No, I think those are all pretty good mantras to live by for the most part. Well, should we start talking about this article? Yeah, I'm excited about this one. So this is an article that I was excited to present. It's a little different from some of our others, but it was very interesting to me and it did change my thinking along several lines about patients with opioid use disorder. So the title is, Does a Survivorship Model of Opioid Use Disorder Improve Public Stigma or Policy Support? A General Population Randomized Experiment. And it was published in the Journal of General Internal Medicine. And that journal is awesome. That's the big kind of... I hope people don't think this is an insult. This is like the nerd journal for general internists, this academic general internists journal. And I love this journal. And also one of the authors was Dr. Thrakrar, who wrote a paper we profiled in episode 21 on short-acting opioid agonists. So I noticed he was an author of this paper as well. So keep up the good work, Dr. Thrakrar. Yet another amazing paper. So this paper is about stigma against people with opioid use disorder. There is huge stigma against people with opioid use disorder and against people who treat this disease, and there's stigma against even being involved in treating opioid use disorder. This high level of stigma contributes to a lack of interest in treatment from the medical community, a lack of support for policies that might benefit people with opioid use disorder. You know, they say, what's the point of helping these people? They just keep doing X, Y, and Z. Why even bother to help them? There's huge stigma against helping people with opioid use disorder. So there have been a lot of things done to try to address this stigma, and one of them is promoting opioid use disorder as a chronic treatable medical disease like diabetes rather than as a behavioral choice. So describing addiction as a chronic relapsing brain disease has been shown to reduce stigma, and this model has really been adopted by mainstream medicine. So for instance, You know, I just was looking around on the internet. The Yale Medical School has information on its website saying opioid use disorder is a chronic disease of the brain, sometimes called an addiction. The AMA says adopt view of opioid use disorder as a chronic disease. You know, all these sort of mainstream professional societies, even the Surgeon General had um, on their website, it says severe substance use disorders commonly called addictions, were once viewed largely as a moral failing or character flaw, but are now understood to be chronic diseases that are subject to relapse and characterized by clinically significant impairments in health, et cetera, et cetera. So this chronic disease model has really been the one pushed by the mainstream medical community. But there's two problems with it. The first is it hasn't necessarily worked to reduce stigma. There's still so much stigma against patients with opioid use disorder. And second, this chronic disease model doesn't actually accurately describe the experience of many of our patients in long-term remission who suffered from opioid use disorder in the past, but they don't feel it affects their current daily life. They don't feel that their addiction is an essential biologic trait that requires lifelong management. And this study aimed to address these two concerns by testing what they called the survivorship model of addiction. So the survivorship model of addiction is analogous to a cancer survivorship model. You can survive an episode of opioid addiction the same way you can survive cancer. 
It recognizes the need for some ongoing specialized care, but it doesn't consider the patient to be in a perpetually diseased state. It implies that the disease was in the past, but is now gone. And this survivorship model is also reflective of some epidemiologic studies that do show that once long-term remission from opioid use disorder is achieved, returning to use is relatively uncommon. Although I will say that data is a little old and it's not from the current time of fentanyl addiction. So it might not be as true these days, but we all know lots of people in long-term recovery who really don't seem to have a high chance of returning to active addiction. Another thing this study wanted to address was the effect of race and gender on stigma. And so they wanted to take bias based on race and gender into account as well when developing interventions to reduce stigma. So what they wanted to see was whether this survivorship concept of addiction would reduce stigma and whether it would improve public support for policies that help people with addiction compared to the chronic disease model. John, do you see a lot of stigma against patients with opioid use disorder? And do you think calling it a chronic disease has helped that stigma? Um, I think it's like that's a double-edged sword, right? I think there's still a ton of stigma, I think, amongst the medical community, but just the, the population as a whole. But I think that the chronic disease model has been somewhat effective. I think that there's more people that kind of understand that there's more going on here than a choice. Um, I think also like medical schools have done a better job of kind of including that in curriculum. I I am optimistic about the future. Sadly, I I feel like the stigma probably exists the most in some kind of my closer to retirement colleagues that, you know, maybe have had a career where they were at one time prescribing opioids and they were told not to prescribe opioids. And I think it's kind of an evolution of knowledge with mental health. There's still a lot of work to go, but I think that like optimistically, I look at where we are from where we were and I think it has helped. The other problem I see with the chronic disease model of addiction is it's good for people who are in recovery, who are relatively stable and are sort of working to treat their addiction. It doesn't quite fit, at least from a medical provider standpoint, patients who are in active addiction and very, very sick. You know, I do tell people and, and you know, it said, okay, we should treat opiate use disorder like diabetes. You should prescribe buprenorphine the same way you might prescribe an SGLT2 inhibitor or a GLP-1 agonist for diabetes. But you spend about 20 minutes working with people with addiction and you realize it's not the same. There's a lot of issues that go into working with people with addiction that are different from people with diabetes. So the metaphor has some limits, especially in people who are really sick. So I do want to put that out there. But this survivorship concept is really for patients who are very, very stable. And I do think it might reduce stigma for sure, because I don't really see a lot of patients with addiction who you know, are in recovery 10, 15, 20 years who really feel like it has an active place in their day-to-day life, like a diabetic would. I mean, someone with diabetes thinks about it all the time, you know, every single meal, multiple times a day as they take medications. And a lot of people in long-term recovery don't think about their addiction that way. So I think this article was really interesting and it gave me a great framework to think about some of those patients in long-term recovery. All right, you ready to hear the clinical question? Yep. So The population in this study was U.S. adults, and they were recruited by a market research firm. There were 1,172 of them, and they were chosen to approximate the U.S. population in terms of gender, age, race, and ethnicity. They had nice, even distributions of ages, locations in the U.S., political affiliations, education, employment status, and again, they approximated the overall U.S. population. About 82% were white, about half were male, half were female. So those were the people, market research firm recruitment. The intervention was that they had to look at four vignettes, one of four vignettes, and those vignettes presented the survivorship model of addiction 
with different man, woman, and black-white combinations. They were compared to people who viewed one of four vignettes presenting the chronic disease model of addiction with different man, woman, and black-white combinations. So basically, you got to see two different vignettes, one about one that put the patient as a survivor, the other that presented the patient as a chronic disease patient. And then you got a white man, white woman, black man, black woman to uh, compare your attitude toward these four different people in the vignettes. The outcomes were, one, public stigma. What were your public feelings about people with addiction? So your desire for social distance from them, your perception of dangerousness, and your overall feelings towards the subject. Those outcomes were stratified by race and gender and to see if those moderated any differences in stigma. And then the second outcome was your support for seven opioid-related policies after hearing the vignette. So they wanted to see which vignette made you feel more positively towards these opioid-related policies that were designed to support people with opioid use disorder. So I do want to read the vignette to our listeners because it really gives you a sense of what this model is all about. So this first vignette is Mary. And in the male version, he had a male name, but this is Mary. She is a woman in her mid-30s who has completed high school. Mary used heroin for the first time one year after high school while at a party. At first, she only used heroin on weekends. After a few weeks, she found that she increasingly felt the desire to use more heroin. Mary then began using heroin every day. She spent all her savings and borrowed money from her friends and her parents to buy more heroin. Each time she tried to cut down, she could not sleep, and she felt anxious, sweaty, and nauseated for hours. These symptoms lasted until she used heroin again. Her friends complained that she had become unreliable. She made plans one day and canceled them the next. Her parents said she had changed and that they could no longer count on her. Mary tried to stop using heroin many times, but after a few days, she would always go back to using heroin. After living this way for six years, Mary went to see a doctor for help. The doctor diagnosed her with an opioid addiction. With her doctor's help, Mary entered a treatment program for her addiction. She started talking with a doctor regularly, and took many steps to improve her life and stop using heroin. As of today, Mary has not used any heroin or other drugs for over 10 years. She lives near her parents, she enjoys spending time outdoors, and takes part in various activities in her community. While Mary still experiences life's ups and downs, she does not feel she needs to use heroin to cope. So that's her story of Mary. And you can see if you're familiar with the DSM-5 criteria for opioid use disorder, you can see Mary hit a bunch of those criteria in her little vignette here. And so the varying elements now come. Chronic disease Mary has this description. Mary believes her opioid addiction is a chronic and relapsing disease, and it is possible that she will use heroin again. Put differently, her opioid addiction is a chronic disease like diabetes, which requires ongoing work or treatment. She feels that she is living with the chronic disease of opioid addiction, and it will always be present in her body, mind, and life. Second vignette is Survivorship Mary, and it says, Mary believes she survived her opioid addiction, and it is unlikely that she will use heroin again. Put differently, her opioid addiction is a survivable condition, like some cancers, which can be treated and not come back for the rest of her life. She feels that she is a survivor of opioid addiction and it is no longer present in her body, mind, and life. So those are our two models. John, what do you think of those two vignettes? Do you feel one is more or less accurate for describing the patients that you see? Well, no, but hearing the two vignettes, the one does sound much more positive. You know, I think the, the, the survivorship definitely sounds like has a more positive spin. I'm sure that the words are all kind of meant to be like non-triggering, but it certainly does kind of rub you one way. 
I mean, the only thing kind of strikes me about that is, well, I, I think, you know, this is a survivable condition. The idea there, there is brain changes, right? We do have data that there are some irreversible changes that occur that predispose you and, and rewire some of the way that you kind of perceive the world and perceive sensation. So I'm not sure if entirely it's something that, you know, you just totally overcome and it's never an issue again. Well, right. And I don't, it doesn't say this specifically. I guess it's up to every person's interpretation. But to me, the survivorship model doesn't imply that you've had no changes to yourself from your opioid addiction. I mean, maybe the same way cancer marks you. You know, you come out missing a body part or two, surgical scars, chemotherapy, uh, you know, neuropathy, cardiomyopathy. Even if the cancer is completely gone, you're not the same person afterwards. So I think that could still be part of the survivorship model. Let's just quick go over the different types of stigma. They also polled the subjects about. So they did some scales. First was the social distance scale. So how willing would you be to have this person with an opioid addiction marry into your family? And two, how willing would you be to have a person with an opiate addiction live next door? And finally, how willing would you be to have a person with an opioid addiction be a friend? So marrying, neighbor, or friend. And then how likely is it that a person with an opioid addiction would do something violent towards other people? And how likely is it that a person with an opioid addiction would do something violent towards themselves? So what's your perception of dangerousness just towards self and towards others? And finally, they gave everybody a feelings thermometer. So the thermometer went from zero to 100 degrees. And the higher the number, the more favorable or warm you felt towards the person. A rating of 50 meant you didn't feel particularly cold or warm towards that person. So you were right in the middle. So you got to look at the feelings thermometer. And then the policy support questions. Do you support policies? And there were seven of them. I'm not going to read all the details on them, but there were things like parity for medication coverage with insurances, supporting housing subsidies for people with opioid addiction, supporting syringe services, which, you know, are otherwise called needle exchanges, things like safe supply program. Would you support government issued, officially uncontaminated heroin being given to people who have opiate use disorder? So some pretty radical policies and some kind of basic policies that everybody supports. So that's the clinical question. Just to summarize, you viewed some of the vignettes, you viewed one vignette, and then you got to see how warmly you felt towards the person in the vignette and what you felt about policies to support people with opiate use disorder. And then they compared those results for people who had seen the vignette for the survivorship model versus the vignette with the chronic disease model. So that's the question. Next thing is validity. So before we talk about whether the trial is valid, John, did you like the clinical question or is there anything different you would want to know from this study? No, I think the question is pretty valid. I mean, especially if I was kind of in recovery or, or kind of attempting recovery, how other people view me and kind of how like my story is portrayed. I think that's very patient centered. Yeah, I think it's a great question. So let's talk about validity. First, strengths. This was randomized. The participants were recruited by a market research firm, which employed quality verifications and prevented duplicate answers and duplicate respondents. The sample size was large enough with 1,172 participants. Their recruitment goal was 1,000, so they met their recruitment goal to appropriately power their study. After they randomized 1,339 people, they did have to remove 167 for either not completing the survey. They think they didn't do it correctly. They either took too long 
or not enough time or just never finished it. So they did have to remove some people after randomization. The sample participants approximated the U.S. population along some lines, not everything, but the ones that they looked at in this sample. The vignettes were modeled on previously validated studies of stigma, so they didn't just make them up completely new. Another thing that was good is that the interventions were both equal with the exception of the study vignette. So all the participants got exactly the same thing, just slightly different vignette. They did several sensitivity analyses and they included those participants who were excluded for irregularities in their study completion in a sensitivity analysis to see if those people who were excluded would have changed the results in one way or the other. And finally, it was funded by a research award from Johns Hopkins and the NIAAA. So I thought that was unlikely to cause bias. A few weaknesses. First, the sample was not nationally representative of the U.S. population overall among many axes. I think I said before, they tried to represent the U.S. population in terms of race, sex, age, political affiliation, a few other things, but there's a lot that they did not include. So it's possible the people in the study didn't actually represent the U.S. population. Second, the vignette to me seems slightly out of date because it talks about heroin and uses the word heroin like 14 times. And heroin is like not even a thing anymore. I think we have mentioned on a previous episode, it's like 98% of the illicit opioids out there are uh, fentanyl and almost none of it is heroin. So it doesn't depict people who use fentanyl technically. There was also no true control, maybe a vignette about someone who does not use heroin. So you could have heard a vignette about someone who's into bowling and then seen what you felt about opioid-related policies. So there wasn't really a, a true control here And with that in mind, it's possible that the two models of addiction were just too similar. They're both medicalized. They both involve a lot of involvement with a doctor, and they both have a goal of total abstinence as a success. And so some people, I mean, a lot of our patients actually view success not as total abstinence, but more of a harm reduction model where they might continue to use substances. They just experience a lot less harm from it. A final weakness is that the survivorship model was relatively novel. The stigma vignette was kind of similar to ones that have been previously validated, but the survivorship model was new. So we don't really have any way to validate whether this model, I don't know, makes sense to people, what people really think about it. Do they view this actually as different from the chronic disease model or maybe people just think of them as the same? So we're not really sure. But I thought overall the strengths were good and the weaknesses were pretty limited. So I thought it was a valid trial. Did you think it was valid, John? Yeah, can I ask you a question? Did I didn't hear, or maybe I missed this, did they do anything to screen for participants for previous ex- experience or exposure to kind of uh, opioid use disorder, like family member exposure or possible bias coming into it? No. Okay. And that's a great point. The other group that was not officially represented was people, so people with addiction in recovery, but also people who are healthcare workers. That's who I work with a lot. And I'm always trying to reduce stigma among healthcare workers. And they were also not necessarily represented in this study. So let's talk about the results. Basically, exposure to the survivorship model resulted in somewhat warmer feelings compared to the chronic disease model, but the difference was very small. So survivorship model feelings were given, you know, a pretty warm rating, about 72 degrees and the chronic disease model a little cooler at 67 degrees. So people felt a little cooler towards the chronic disease people. There was no effect that was any different based on individuals' race or gender, and there was no difference on measures of public stigma or support for addiction policy. So the only thing that came out different was how warmly people felt towards the patient in the vignette. And again, the survivorship model generated slightly warmer feelings. 
So because this is a novel model, it's unclear what the significance of this small observed difference is in this feelings thermometer, so five points out of 100. It's unclear if this means it would have an impact in a broader sort of policy sense, especially in light of the lack of difference regarding support for addiction policies. So small difference, not huge, just in the feelings thermometer. That's the main result of this paper. One thing that was interesting, though, was while there wasn't a difference in stigma between the two groups in most measures in this paper, the extent of the stigma was pretty amazing. Most people, actually a lot more than I thought in the study, supported addiction policies. For instance, 70% supported insurance parity for treatment of opioid use disorder. 50% supported housing subsidies for people with opioid use disorder. 62 and 58% supported primary care methadone. So that's more than half the people think their PCPs should be able to prescribe methadone. So get ready, John, that might be coming down the uh, road to you. 40% supported safe consumption sites. So that's a place where you could go to use your drugs that is monitored and safe. And even more than that, 43 and 42% supported safe supply programs. So that's kind of radical. I didn't think there would be that much public support for some of these policies. A lot fewer people supported having people with addiction in their lives. So whether you'd be willing to marry someone, have someone as a neighbor, or even have them as a friend, it was less than 50% for all of those. And marry got the worst. Um, Only 27, 28% would want to marry someone with an addiction. So there was still significant stigma in both groups, and it was similar. So again, I'm just going to summarize the findings. Portraying opioid use disorder through a survivorship model resulted in slightly warmer feelings towards people with opioid use disorder compared to a chronic disease model. The significance of this small difference is not clear, and it did not correlate with increased support for addiction policies. However, there is broad support for policies that help people with opioid use disorder, and significant personal stigma against them exists. So, John, what did you think of the results? I thought it was interesting. I think it's a pretty progressive group of uh, participants, right? I thought, especially thinking of like safe injection sites, 40%, that's a, that's pretty high. I think that if you pulled the, the U.S. as a whole, I don't, don't think you'd get 40%. Um, or maybe I'm wrong and maybe there is shifting stigma and uh, shifting away from stigma. I mean, this is kind of optimistic, some of this. Well, and these people were not specially chosen to feel warmly towards people with opioid use disorder. You know, they were people who who signed up for a market research firm to do market research, if nothing necessarily to do with opioids, and they were chosen to be nationally representative. So maybe they are, you know, nationally representative of the U.S. population. Maybe there'll be a safe consumption site coming to a neighborhood near you. It's, it's interesting, too, about the relationship aspect, too, that that one kind of went the, the lowest, because I think actually a lot of us do have relationships with someone that has some sort of substance use issue. And it's surprising that that was the one that most of the people had the least buy-in to it. I don't know. That was surprising because that, that I would think that would be much higher than injection, safe injection sites. Yeah, maybe there's something to it in that those of us who work in the addiction community, we've seen loved ones suffer when a family member has an addiction. And if you've ever seen someone try to go through an addiction with a spouse, you know, and what it takes to support that spouse and how painful it can be, you kind of wouldn't wish that on anybody. So maybe that's why people said they would not be interested in going through that with that question. So after after reading this article, kind of million dollar question, how do you view patients, uh, these two models? I totally view some of my long-term chronic patients as survivors and not chronic disease patients. I mean, truly the addiction does not play 
any role in their daily life. Or if it does, it's pretty minimal. Like the full role is just the taking of buprenorphine and maybe the conscious effort to avoid, you know, drinking or other drugs that, you know, turning them down at parties or avoiding people who are also using. But it's not really a day-to-day struggle or a day-to-day chronic disease. So actually, this model much better captures some of my more chronic patients. So I actually like it. I think it's I think it's really good. And I also like the concept of surviving because this is a potentially deadly disease. And I do admire people who come out the other side intact. I really do feel that they have survived it. So I think I'll be thinking about patients with this model quite a lot. What about you? It was interesting. We covered this at Journal Club a couple of weeks ago. And actually, I have a couple of people in long-term recovery that I still see. Some I, I see just as a, their primary care doctor. They're not even on medication anymore. And certainly, they very much kind of identify with the survivorship model when I talked with them about it, just kind of informally chatting about it. It was actually really nice conversations. But it's interesting, though, a couple of them, though, that kind of identify that, you know, many of them have careers in recovery where they are kind of living it every day still. So I I feel like there is an aspect of their life that still kind of is involved with that. Ironically, I feel like a big revelation for me as a younger doctor was kind of looking at the disease model to kind of rationalize decisions because at times you have conflict with patients and I don't know, maybe as a, as a personal survivorship or my own survivorship, just realizing that possibly this is not the person's prefrontal cortex. This is the locus ceruleus. This is the, the midbrain kind of driving these decisions and that, you know, it's not personal. And I don't know, that's kind of helped me relate to kind of difficult times with, with some patients. So I don't know, maybe there's a place for both. I think so. And you have to keep in mind which phase of addiction you're dealing with. So of course, someone who's in active addiction, a little bit out of control, not themselves, you know, really struggling, you'll view them differently than someone who's 10 years drug-free, taking buprenorphine once a day and coming in to see you once every three months. So I think also recognizing the different phases and using different models for those different phases is very helpful because you can get into trouble if you try to squeeze all these different phases into one model. And that's why I like learning about this. It really did give me some words to describe what I see in clinical practice. That's a great point. Thanks for that article. That was awesome. You're welcome. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, send us your comments on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, email, or join our Facebook group. The links are in the show notes. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing by Aaron McHugh. Produced by Patrick Thiemann at Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles for review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.